Let's pick up in chapter 22. I want to I want to deal specifically uh, with the end of the chapter. This is the end of the chapter. is an incredibly tragic chapter ending. But remind you of what is going on here. David is a fugitive now from Saul who's seeking to kill him. He's instructed his officers to kill him and all of the things. We talked about Jonathan and how David is on the run. He had been hiding out in Masada, the stronghold on the west side of the of the Dead Sea. The prophet Gad, we talked about him last week, he will show up again and again and again, tells him to get into Judah. Uh, and we talked about that. And then the, the, the text shifts to Saul. From Doeg, the Edomite, and we talked about that in verse 6 through verse 10, Doeg, the Edomite, had been uh, with Ahimelech, the, the, the priest at Nob. There was a priestly school there and had heard David. David gets the sword of Goliath. David gets food for his men, and he reports this to Saul. Then Saul summons Ahimelech. And you're going to see what happened. I want to pick up with verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priest who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. Now, again, that is not only Ahimelech, but it's all the priests. Nob was a priestly, uh, we would maybe call a school or a training center. And all Saul, and Saul said, I'm in verse 12, here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. And Saul said, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? Notice again how he's referring to David. That's a rather derogatory way to refer to him. In that you have given him bread, a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he's risen against me, the lion wait, as it is this day. And Himelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house. Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. Now, again, I, it's a little cumbersome to read that in English, but Himalek is saying, just a minute. He's your son-in-law. He's been blessed of God. He's helped you. What, what are you? Why are you upset and trying to kill David? Then, in verse 16, the king said, this would be Saul saying, you shall surely die, Himalek, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. That is an incredible, the priests of Yahweh, the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. The servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned, struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who were wearing the linen ephod. Now, don't stumble. The ephod was just like a like a, a cape that went over their shoulders and covered their chest and covered their back. The high priest would wear it with some additional things, but that's all it means. They're functioning priests. That's all it means. That's an astounding number. Doeg, at the behest of Saul, is slaughtering the core of the priests of Israel. And Nob, the city of the priest, had put it to the, he put to the sword. Both man and woman and child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. Now, I hope you don't miss what 19 is. Saul is treating the priestly city of Nob the way Joshua treated the Canaanite cities during the conquest. If you look at it theologically, you can go back, for example, to the book of, of Joshua. God says to him, put all of these cities, and the, the, the translating the Hebrew into English, under the ban. You are to destroy them because they are ungodly, wicked people, and if you allow them to live, you will be influenced by their idolatry and their immorality. This is land I'm giving to you. You purge the land. Saul is treating, this is incredible. Saul is treating the priestly city of Nob like it's a Canaanite city. He's putting it under the ban. He kills every living thing in the city. Not to stretch that word too much, but in a sense, this is a holocaust. And it's, it's almost an it's unimaginable evil. 
for the Jewish king of Israel to do this to a priestly city for one reason. They showed favor to David. And his paranoia, his paranoia, his delusional paranoia, that mental illness that he struggles with, this, this, this demonically energized evil causes him to do something that is absolutely horrific. It's unimaginable that the king would do this. So it shows you two things. Number one, it shows you how far away from God Saul really is. And it shows you how much evil a man can do, even a king who is under the influence of, of satanic evil. Now, what is important, uh, I'm going to put it that way, one of the important results of this is the impact it has on David. And that's what we're interested in. Really, that's what the author is interested in. Okay, are you with me here in, in terms of trying to stress in verse 19, he is treating this priestly city like a Canaanite city during the conquest under Joshua. It, it's horrific. It, it's really unimaginable. But, I'm in verse 20 now. I want to focus here on David. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Now, it, it, you know, we'll take a break here. But as we get back into the text in 2024, you're going to see Abiathar is going to show up again and again. He's, he will be a very loyal priest to David. David will elevate him to the position of a high priest. But that, that's just important. He escapes, and by God's providence, he escapes. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Abiathar, his father's house, Hamelech's house. Say with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in case safekeeping. So what we, what we see here are two, two applicational lessons. Number one, you see David confessing here. David is recognizing, he says, what I did has caused the death of your father's family. So he's owning up to it. And that, again, this is, this is one of those little threads of evidence that's through the story of David. He's a man after God's own heart. Instead of hardening his heart, his heart is softened, and he confesses. And it shows you and me, as we read something like this, again, just I suppose I could say it this way, a reminder of the consequences of sin. David lied to Ahimelech. I'm going back to the previous couple chapters. He lied to Ahimelech when he said, I'm on a special mission from Saul. That's why I don't have my sword. I had to run quickly to obey the king. I need food from you. He contrived that story. And because of what Ahimelech did, well, I don't know if I should give this to you. I don't have it. And so, and he keeps, no, I am on a mission. And so David is connecting his lie and his duplicity with what Saul did. I should not have done. And he owns up to that. But you see, again, the consequences, the unintended consequences of sin. And it's David is owning up to this. And it's important for our story as it unfolds. As I mentioned a moment ago, Abiathar is going to become a very important person in David's kingdom once all the things settle down in about 10 years. Okay? I wanted to finish that last week, but we ran out of time, so I, I couldn't get it done. Let's continue now and look at what David now does as he's, it's, it's kind of complicated and this continued pursuit by day of Spicel of David and all of that. Now, they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. The, now, Keilah is where David is. He's in the caves of Adullam. It's a little bit east of that. It's really close to the Philistine territory. So they're raiding one of these little villages. If, if you look on your map, I have several maps in your notes, but you can see it. It's very close to Gath. So it's really, it makes sense. So what is David going to do? Look at verse 2. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. You will see that phrase in this chapter four times. In verse 2, verse 4, 
verse 10 and verse 11. That's important. David is back in fellowship with the Lord. David back in seeking the Lord's clear guidance in what he's supposed to do. So David is not acting impulsively. He's acting under the direction of the Lord. So he goes. He inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? Now he's in the caves of Adullam, not that far from where the Philistines has these punitive raids. They do this constantly at this time in history. And so David says, should I go deal with that? And the Lord answers. I'm in the middle of verse 2. Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Bo, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Verse 4. Then David inquired of the Lord again. And notice, Lord, there's Yahweh. Uh, extremely important title of God, the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am. He inquired the Lord again. And the Lord answered, Arise, go down to Kela, for I will give the Philistines into your hands. I will give it into your hands. And so David is seeking the Lord's guidance. He hears the Lord's direction. The Lord says, I will deliver them. So David will not act in faith. He will respond in faith to what God has said. And David and his men went to Caleb, verse 5, fought with the Philistines, brought away their livestock, struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Caleb. So did God, did God fulfill, here Bill, did God fulfill the promise he made to David? I will give them in your hands. Answer, yes. And in addition to that, he brought away livestock. This is David. He's getting some of the spoil of the battle. But I want you to notice something else. Remember in the previous chapter, the prophet Gad said, David, get out of Masada and go back into Judah. That's your home base. So as David is rescuing these Judahites from the Philistines, what's he doing? He's building support. And that, this is very important because David's support base, I hate to use modern terms that we talk about politics, but his support base is Judah because that's his, 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 uh, his tribe. But what he's doing is he's rescuing them because the Philistines are constantly attacking Judah, which is why I think the Lord wants him there. So, again, the main point, there's a lot going on here, but the main point is connecting with what we just studied about the horror of Nob. David is back in fellowship with the Lord, and he's seeking God's guidance. He's not acting impulsively. He's not acting out of fear. He's acting out of faith. What do you want me to do? And God gives him clear direction. Who are the current Philistines? That's impossible to discern that anymore. It really is. They uh, they pretty much, uh, well, we'll be studying this as we go through the rest of the day. They will pretty much neutralize the Philistines and they will no longer be a threat. And then there, there will, as always happens here, there's going to start to be a lot of intercultural, intermarriage connections. But very specifically in 586 B.C., actually right before that, when Nebuchadnezzar is doing all his stuff and destroys Jerusalem, takes the captive, he also goes into Philistia and commits virtual genocide there. So those that hadn't an intercultural mixing and intermarriage to survive, they were, you could probably say, they're fairly closely extinguished because of what Nebuchadnezzar did. There is no evidence of any existing Philistines. The, the historic Philistines are not Palestinian. That they're, that's different uh, in, in terms of an ethnic background. Is, I'm answer, is that an interesting question? Yes. Okay. Okay. Sure. Uh, okay, now, go with me now to verse 6. Again, what is, is quite marvelous. When Abithar, the son of Himalek, had fled to David, to David from Tukela, he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now, that again, that's that cape that they wore over, but it also is what the priest would wear. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Caleb. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself by entering town at his gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Caleb to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant, 
I want you to notice something here before we look at the content. How he addresses. This is the covenant name of God. Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. He's using the full covenant name of God. And he says, your servant. David has been anointed king a couple of years ago, but he sees himself still as the servant of God. You surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Gala to destroy the city in my town. Will the men of Gala surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O oh, Lord God of Israel, please tell your servant. Again, this is just marvelous. David's back in fellowship with the Lord. He's not acting impulsively. And he asks a very specific question. I'm hiding out in this town that I just rescued from the Philistine. But he asks a very prudent question. Are they going to turn against me and give me over to Saul? Because David knows, again, as as Saul said, remember, the cities of the ancient world had a wall around them for protection. But the only danger of that is that you're in that wall and you have an enemy outside the wall, you're trapped. And they're going to lay siege to the city and they're going to probably destroy the city. And that's what Saul's going to do. So David very specifically says, are they going to deliver me? Because, I mean, the logic is the leaders of the city have a guy named David who's a fugitive from the king, and the king wants David. And king's going to say, if you don't give me David, I'm going to destroy your city, burn it to the ground, kill everybody. So the natural question is, if he threatens to do that, are they going to give me to Saul? And what does the Lord say? He will come down. Will they surrender? What does the Lord say? Yes, they will. The Lord said, they will surrender you. So David and his men, verse 13, David and his men, who were about 600, I told you, that's that core military base he's built, arose and departed from Caleb. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David escaped from, escaped from Caleb, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness, in the hill country, in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. The protective hand of God is still upon Saul. Ziph is, these names are very difficult, I know, but it's along the east side. Here's the Dead Sea. It's along the east side of the, excuse me, the west side of the Dead Sea. It's a rocky, horribly barren wilderness is where he's hiding out. All right. I have a very fascinating question to ask you in the next paragraph. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. So he went into the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. It's a, it's a forest. That's all. Horesh is a forest. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. What's interesting about that verse? His son knows where he's at. Yeah. Jonathan find David, but Saul can't. That's, that's, that's right, Russ. That's exactly the point. I mean, it's really fascinating. I mean, the Bible doesn't say anything about it, doesn't make any comments. It's really interesting that Jonathan doesn't have any f- trouble finding David. Saul's running all over the wilderness. He can't find him. It's just a fascinating, ironic reality of the situation. But this is the last time Jonathan and David will meet. Jim? Uh, what what is what does um and strengthened his hand in God? What does that uh, what does that indicate? I'm I'm losing the pronouns here and kind of. Well, that would be strengthen his. The his I would understand to be a pronoun referring to David. David, straight. Yeah, that, that. So I would imagine, and that's a really good question. I appreciate you asking it that way. It's, it's, it's really a wonderful reminder of the encouragement and edification that a friend can give to another friend who's in trouble. But and his, hand, his hand in God, that's the part that I don't know. How does God well, play into this? He strengthened David because his friend came to him or helped him or was encouraging him. But how does that strengthen his hand in well, God? You know, his hand in God is a figure of speech. It's a metaphor. Uh, it, it might go something like this, Russ, and all the rest of you can, can understand it, too. You know, the key to our walk with God, if I can speak figuratively, is keep our hand tightly clutched in his. 
when we let go, we can be in trouble. So Jonathan is probably saying something like this. David, you you now are back in fellowship with the Lord. We just read that in the first part of chapter 23. David, you don't want to let go of that. And David, let's remember a couple of things. God has anointed you through Samuel to be the next king. God has promised you that he will be with you. We just read that God did not give him into Saul's hand, the end of the previous verse. So, so, so I think, Russ, what he's doing is he's encouraging and edifying David by reminding him, you are in the hand of God, the safest place you can be. God is sovereignly, providentially protecting and guarding you. He will keep his promises to you. Don't let go, David. That's how I understand that, uh, Russ. It's figurative language, uh-huh. just strengthening and encouraging and edifying. David, just, I mean, I, I you know, it's fairly... A real large group, a fairly good group here, and those online. We got a pretty good group of people here. If you reflect them back in your life, there had to be times in your life where a friend or a very close relative or somebody encouraged you by reminding you of certain things, reading scripture to you, praying with you, or whatever the specific context might have been. That is that that strengthens our hand in the Lord. It reminds us of who we are. Reminds us of who God is and reminds us of our relationship. And we leave that time with that friend or family member, whatever, encouraged, edified, built up, yeah. strengthened. That's what I was I think that's ask. What's going on here. Does, is it really a translation to, you could translate that to edification? I think so. Okay. And what I think is so marvelous here is Jonathan goes down to David. I'm assuming that's the main reason he went down for David, to encourage his close friend. But, I mean, it's just, it's, this is one of those sad, it had to be one of those sad points in David's life, because he will never see Jonathan again. The next time he will see Jonathan is when, when he finds his body on Mount Gaboa, the end of this book, when, when the Philistines kill, kill Jonathan. So, I mean, this is, this is a tender moment in their relationship. And please, please look at these verses, because I think verse 17 is illustrating what, what I was just responding to in terms of what Russ questioned. What does he say? Do not fear. 365 times in the Bible, God says, do not fear. And so Jonathan says, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Again, is that... Jonathan is deferring to what God has said. I should date John said, I should be the king. I'm the heir, but no. He 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 defers to what God has done. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them, verse 18, the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Harash, and Jonathan went home. And the, the, the <coughs> excuse me, the fundamental point here is a friend edifying another friend in a time of crisis. That's why God gives us friends. <laughs> and that's what, ha- this is just a marvelous illustration of this connection between these two men. And by the way, I did a study of this several years ago. Jonathan is 30 years older than David. Mm-hmm. We sometimes get the picture that they're, they're two young strapping teenagers. They're not. Jonathan is much older than David. And, uh, well, anyway, that's not the point. I don't mean why I threw that in there, but it's just an illustration of this very tight covenant friendship that they have. And I use that because that's the Bible says here they made a covenant. There's a deep commitment here, a deep friendship. And this, this was used by the Lord to help David in this time of crisis. But David's not out of hot water. But he's been reminded of God's promise, reminded of God's care. Is David going to continue to act in faith, believing that? It's going to be tested. And David's life, until we get to the end of this book, David's life's going to be like this. He's going to have high points. We just had a high point. He's back in fellowship with the Lord. He's inquiring of the Lord. Jonathan's encouraged him. We're, we're going to... We're going to start to see something else happen. But I, oh, I hope we can get chapter 24 done before the end of the hour. 
Then the Ziphites, I'm in chapter, uh, in verse 19, the Ziphites, we're in Judah. And one of the clans of Judah are the Ziphs, or the Ziphites. They live on the, here's the Dead Sea. They live on this west side right here. That's where David is. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah. Remember, Gibeah is Saul's hometown. Gibeah is the capital city of Saul's kingdom. Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Peresh, the hill of Aquila, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, in part to be surrender him into the king's hand. Good night. These people that were David, they go up to Salt Gibeah, <coughs> which is in the Ephraim land, Grant. We'll give you David. Wow. It's going to be a test. It's going to be a test of David's faith. Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you've had compassion on me. I can almost vomit when I read a verse like that. <laughs> Go, make yet more sure. Know and set the place where his foot is, and who has seen him here. For it has told me that he's very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of these lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. And I will go with you. And if he's in the land, I'll search him out with all the strongholds of thousands of Judah. And he rose and went to Zeph. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshima. Arabah is another name for the Dead Sea. Arabah is the Old Testament, there are several, one of the names of the Dead Sea area. So that's where we are. That's where David is. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And so David was told. So we went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of my own. It's, it's extremely rugged territory there. That's where he's living. Saul when he heard that, if he pursued after David in the wilderness of my own. So when on the one side of the mountain, David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul. And he stopped there. The text here is very specific. David is trapped. He's in this rough wilderness area. He's in the crag of rocks, and he's increasingly being surrounded by Saul's men. David is trapped. Then what happened? Hurry, come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land, the messenger says to Saul. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, this place is called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. What just happened? Providence. The providence of God. I wrote that in my Bible. I wrote that in the margin of my Bible. Again, God's providence, his protection of David. <clears throat> if God's hand is upon you, you are invincible. Jim Elliott, by the way, his birthday is today. I get a little uh, thing in my inbox every morning of who's from church history, whose famous birthday. This is Jim Elliott's birthday. That's what I thought of him. Jim Elliott used to say, now listen, I hope you would agree with him. Jim Elliott would say, remember, when, after he died, they found his journal. His wife, Elizabeth Elliott, published a lot of this. But one of his journal entries was, we are immortal until God is done with us. My mother used to say better late than never. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're very, very thankful you joined us. We really are. But in, in a way, and I have to think through that. That's a, a bold statement. But but what 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 God is doing here with David, David has been promised by God. He's anointed of God. God has predetermined his destiny. Nothing's going to stop that. David has to keep being reminded, as Jonathan, his friend, just did, of what God promised. And as you review God's promises, it rebuilds your faith. It rebuilds your confidence. And David just saw again, I was trapped in the wilderness of my own, those high, rugged areas in Judah, eastern uh, Eastern Judah. I, I was almost done for. He will write a psalm about this. But God intervened. David goes farther down. Here's, here, here's the Dead Sea. David's up here. He goes further south into the wilderness of En Gedi. En Gedi is an oasis. En Gedi is an oasis in some of those barren land on planet Earth. 
You know what an oasis is, don't you? Does everybody know what an oasis is? It's a beautiful, I've been there many times. It's absolutely gorgeous. <coughs> you can hardly believe that <coughs> this is the midst of wilderness, but it is. And there are huge caves. There are literally dozens and dozens of caves the farther into the oasis you go. David's hiding there. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. En Gedi is Hebrew for the spring of the kid. It's an oasis, the spring of the kid, the goats. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. How many men does David have? 600. So Saul has five times more men than David. And went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. If, if you ever go there, as you go deeper into the oasis, you see these. There are wild goats all over the place, and there's rocks that they're hiding. And he came to the sheepfold, by the way, and there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. What does that mean? He went to the bathroom. Now, this is not an unusual thing to do, but this is, a, this is amazing. It's an amazing set of circumstances. <coughs> so Saul is this close to David. He's pretty sure he's in these rocks somewhere, but he's got to go to the bathroom. So his soldiers are down the valley just a little bit, and Saul goes into this cave to go to the bathroom. There weren't any public restrooms. Then. If you go to En Gedi today, there are lots of public restrooms. There weren't any. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. These are very deep caves. And the men of David said, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Men, there is no recorded promise in the Bible of God saying that today. So wherever this comes from, what are the men that are with David telling him to do? Kill Saul. Let me put a spiritual spin on this. David, it is God's will that you kill David, uh, Saul. He's given you to him. Kill him. <clears throat> That's a very attractive, very relevant, very poignant order. Does it make sense? Makes sense. Is it spiritually spun? Yes, the Lord did this for you. Here we see the developing qualities of David as a leader. What is he going to do? Fundamentally, man, let's ask the question this way. God promised me that I'm going to be king. By the direction of God, Samuel anointed me to be the king. Is it God's will that I become king by assassination? You understand what I'm saying? That is really the point here. My men are telling me the Lord wants me to kill Saul. That the Lord has given me the opportunity, after all, he came of all, and if you ever go there, there are just caves everywhere. Of all the caves that Saul could go into to relieve himself, he goes into David's cave. So you have two choices. This is either God's will that David kill Saul, or this is a test of David's faith. Because fundamentally, as I mentioned a moment ago, the major issue here is God has promised me I'm going to be king. Samuel, at the direction of the Lord, has anointed me king. Is this how God wants me to become king? By means of assassination? 
Now, in the ancient world, that's a no-brainer. Of course. But this isn't like the ancient world countries. This is a theocracy. This is according to God's moral law, according to God's directive. And as I mentioned a moment ago, here you see the developing leadership of David. I'm in the middle of verse 5. Then David rose and stealthily, you know what that word means, stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So this is what we have to infer happened. In order for Saul to go to the bathroom, he took off his robe and laid it aside and did what he needed to do. And so it's probably lying on a rock or something. So David, stealthily, that's a great translation, stealthily goes over and cuts off the corner and pulls back. And after, notice verse 5. This is, this is remarkable. And after, means after he did that, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner, corner of Saul's robe. David feels guilty. David feels a sense of remorse. You and I, the, the, the Old Testament, there's no Hebrew word for conscience. The New Testament uses the word conscience 31 times. So in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament uses the word heart, it's a synonym for conscience. It's that inner center of why and how we make decisions. This bothers him. So instead of David's heart being hardened, David's heart is softened. He's bothered by what he did. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Who is he speaking about here? Saul. <coughs> to put my hand against him, saying he's the Lord's anointed. Now look, let's, let's parse that. Let's take this apart. David is rejecting the premise that he will become king through assassination. He's going to leave it in God's hand. And as long as Saul is living, he's the Lord's anointed. <clears throat> in effect, David is saying, I'm going to leave it up to God. God promised me I'm going to be king. But the means and specific details by which I become king, I'm going to leave up to him. I will not assassinate Saul. That's remarkable. But think about this. If he's going to be the shepherd king of Israel, according to Deuteronomy 17, he has to not only issue directives that follow God's law, he has to live it. And David is going to leave it in the hands of God to put it so clearly in the minds and hearts of all the tribes, because he's got to unify these disparate tribes. They are not united. That David is not like any other near ancient or eastern king. He follows Yahweh Ohim. He's trusting him in the circumstances. He's not like other kings. And so David says, and notice verse 7, it's a great translation. David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack. Leadership skills. He's persuading the men. Don't you assassinate my this, you see this developing leadership of David according to the moral law of God, and you see his men following that leadership. It's just a fantastic illustration of the kind of leadership God wants to see. <clears throat> and so these men who were trying to convince, this is God's will, kill him. And, and David, I don't know, I wish, of course, the Bible doesn't do it. I wish the Bible would elaborate. How did he do this? What did he say to them? What's the nature of this persuasion? That's one of the 9,762 questions I want to ask when I get to heaven. I'd like a transcript of what he said. Jim, doesn't God do the same with us in everyday life? Even if we're not a David, we're not renowned, but he works with us to develop us Absolutely. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and even broaden it, even God is constantly putting us through tests of our faith. And as we 
as we learn that, that we are strengthened. Our walk is deepened. Our trust is, is, is growing. Our confidence and faith in God is growing. Every day, I, I don't know how you guys look at this, but every day in my life, I find myself being tested in my faith. A little tiny, innocuous, simple things and big major things. But I mean, it, it's, that's how we walk with the Lord. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, book of Hebrews says. David is learning, and he, again, I told you, it's, it's going to be like this until we get to the death of Saul. But David is learning, as we've seen in this previous chapter, he's learning what it means to trust God's promises. God promised him something. Jonathan came down and reminded him of those promises. He's encouraged by that. And so you just see this straight line connection. How is he going to act when he has a chance to assassinate Saul? Do I want to become king through assassination? Is that God's? Is that really God's will that I assassinate Saul? I mean, humanly speaking, that seems, yeah, what an opportunity. Kill him. Oh, wait a minute. Not that simple. What message am I sending to the tribes? What kind of leader am I supposed to be according to Deuteronomy 17? No, I'm not going to do that. And what is marvelous, he persuaded the man. We're not, can, can I finish this? We have a few minutes. Would, can I do, can I go on? You don't have any questions. Nobody has any questions, right? Okay. <laughs> let, me, let me try to finish this. That's not, that's not rhetorical. <laughs> no, I don't mean, but I, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, it's just, it's going to be some. <laughs> we're, not, we're not done with this. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. So Saul pulled up his pants, put on his robe, and walked out of the cave. I, I added, that's not in the Bible. But I added, that's what's going on. And so David goes out. Look what David does. My Lord, the king. That's remarkable, isn't it? My lord, the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. You are the king. I recognize that. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? You've seen a lot of different people say that to one degree or another. Behold, this day your eyes have now seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand up my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father. Now, please note that. My Lord, the king, my father. Now, when he uses, I'm sure you know that, when he uses, he doesn't mean his biological father. He's just, that's, that's another, you are my leader. You are the king. And these are incredibly relevant terms of deference. You know what I mean by deference? Deference to the king. Now, listen, those three things, my lord, the king, my father, are all terms that indicate one thing. I am not a rebel. I am not leading a rebellion against you. I'm not out to kill you. All the evidence that you have heard from all these crazy advisors is wrong. I just could have killed you, but I didn't. I defer to you, Lisa, because God put you there, and God's going to take you there from there. I'm not going to do it. I am not going to be like a typical ancient Near Eastern actor who kills the king so he can be king. I'm not going to do that. See the corner of my of your robe in my hand, and presumably David holds it up. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know that there is no wrong. Or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. Let me stop there. 
What is David doing? Your hand is in, your, your, your life is in God's hand. I will not seek revenge. I mean, David had the case, a strong case for vengeance, for revenge. I mean, Saul's been chasing him all over the place. Numerous times Saul hurled harpoons at him, spears at him, and all the many orders he'd given. David had every right for vengeance. But what does the law say? The Lord said, vengeance is mine. David, thank you. May the Lord judge between me. May the Lord avenge me against you. I'm leaving it in God's hands. And he says, as the Proverbs of ancients said, out of wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. We're not sure what proverb he's referring to here. It isn't one of the Proverbs, so it may just be a proverb that people said. Wickedness is evidenced by wicked behavior. And I'm not wicked. My hand shall not be against you. After whom the king of Israel came out, after whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. What you see here is an extraordinary ethic by which David is living his life. There are three parts to that ethic. Verse 11, I had a chance to kill you. I didn't. That's evidence that I'm not against you. Number two, his ethic. I'm leaving it to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, the Lord say. Look again at, at verse 12. The Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. And then the third part of his ethic is in verse 14 and verse 15. Listen. May the Lord judge between me and you. The Lord will determine my guilt. The Lord will determine your guilt, and he'll make his judgment. Now, I, I was being a little bit, you know, listing some bullets there, but the main point is, and David is saying this to Saul, I'm leaving my life in God's hands, my destiny in God's hands, but he's also saying your life and your destiny, Saul, is in God's hands. It's in the Lord's hands what happens to you. How does Saul respond? As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is that, is that your voice, my son, David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. Boy, that's a self-evident truth, isn't it? It's like you want to say, duh, but this is coming from the mouth of Saul. He is confessing the truth. He is uttering verifiable, clear propositions of reality. You were more righteous than I. And you have declared this day that you have dealt, with, dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put you into your hands. Again, that's amazing. The Lord put you into your hand, me into your hand. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, look at this extraordinary declaration. I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Because that was typical ancient Near Eastern behavior. You become the king, you wipe out the previous king's family. Why? Because they're no longer a threat to you. Saul is saying, 
Would you promise you won't do that? And David swore this to Saul. Now, after what David said as he defends his ethic, and after you see the remorse and confessional statements of Saul, you would expect them to hug each other and march back to Gibeah, the capital of the kingdom, right? There's been reconciliation. Everything God wants in relationships that are restored is confession, honesty, and agreement. But the last part of verse 22 says, And Saul went home, but David and his men were up to the stronghold. And by the way, the word in Hebrew for stronghold is Masada. So if you ever go to Israel, here's En Gedi, here's Masada. Masada is about 10 miles south of En Gedi. So David goes back. So he said, wait a minute, time out. I thought there was reconciliation. David knew Saul. This is momentary. This isn't going to last. Because Saul numerous times had acknowledged that what he's doing is wrong. But David knew. So David continues running. I mean, every time I read this, and I've st I studied many times, and I was going over it again Monday when I studied that, I, I just was struck again. This isn't real reconciliation. Saul said the word, but he didn't mean it because his behavior, his behavior and what follows is going to indicate he didn't really mean this. It's a heart problem. David. David's heart is soft toward God. It's malleable. He allows God to shape and mold him. Saul's heart is hard as a rock toward God. And these moment, these momentary, these momentary times where it seems like he's really repenting, it isn't genuine. He's crushed by the circumstances, but his heart isn't transformed. And you're going to see that as you already know in the chapters that follow. Saul's one of the most tragic figures in the Bible. You just cannot believe that he doesn't genuinely repent. He's not genuinely contrite before the Lord, but he's not. All right. I wanted to get that finished. It would be horrible to break in the middle of chapter 24. So I rushed. I couldn't defend any of you, but I wanted to make sure. You with me? All right, I will take a break here, and you will too. We'll enjoy these weeks uh, of, of celebration of the incarnation of Jesus. This is all, it's what it's all about, what happened, what we celebrate next Monday. In verse 11 and 24, he refers to Saul's father. Mm. Um, I think that's just a term of deference. It doesn't mean biologic, obviously it doesn't mean. I think it's a term of deference because the king... Uh, the way in which Deuteronomy 17, the king is to be the shepherd, father, caring for his people of Israel. David's using that term. Again, I think he, he David, is intentionally using these terms to prove to Saul, I'm not a rebel. I'm not in rebellion against you. You're my lord, you're my king, you're my, quote, father, so to speak. It's a remarkable statement. See you next week.